imagine for a moment you're riding a bicycle to go to the store to buy some delicious bacon to make a wonderful Sunday breakfast for your friends. Along the way, you meet a young man who tells you about a nice little store which sells specialty cheeses. You realize, hey, cheese sounds great. And you change direction and go get the weirdest, stinkiest cheese you can find. You buy that cheese and return home to realize that you forgot to get the bacon along the way. This podcast is a little like that. Today on the podcast, Father Steve Marsh joins the boys to initially discuss mental prayer, but the podcast takes a sharp right turn down the dark alley of the luminous mysteries instituted by St. John Paul II. It became the perfect segue into another conversation we had with Phil from the blog Unum Sanctum Catholicum discussing the validity of modern-day canonizations, including that of the controversial JP2. Make sure you put a helmet on for this one. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Welcome to Theology of the Buddy. <laughs> That's really bad. What's another one? Theology of the Buddy. Yeah, Theology. Theology. Hey, hey we said the human voice is not banned. The body. <laughs> Snapping is thoroughly outside the spirit of the land. <laughs> okay. Alright, alright. All right. Theology of the body. Oh, good old Father John. <laughs> buddy. <laughs> I said buddy. It still sounds like body. <laughs> That's body. Welcome to the Theology of the Buddy podcast. Buddy. Father Steve is here. Hi, I'm Father Steve, and I am going to ruin everything for all of you. I'm sorry. <laughs> welcome, welcome. I'm Chris. Aaron. I'm Aaron. Matt. Uh, do you want to do the follow-up from last episode? What follow-up from last episode? How you did. Let's not cut it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So last episode, you said this in the podcast. Give me my new challenge. I mean, anytime I say anything bad, I'm going to try to balance it with... But God is so, like, try to talk more positively about God. Because a lot of people, like, don't hear anything about religion. So if it's just trads saying, if it's just me, if someone only had, like, me has their view of Catholicism, that would be really bad, you know? Like, so, I, you know, like, me too. I, I got to try too. to balance. That's my new goal. So I bet you'll ask me next week how it goes. I'm going to try to, anytime <laughs> I say anything bad, I'm going to try to say something good, too. See how it goes. Yeah. So we're asking you about it. How'd it go? It went terrible. Yeah, <laughs> you're, the third, you're the third person to ask me. Um, Gigi did, and my mom did, and yeah, my mom like yeah, that's the first thing she, when she listened to that. She came like when I came home, she was she asked me when I said something, and then she's like, "Oh, but Aaron, you said you're gonna do this," and then I was like, "Yeah, wow. well, shut up, mom," and that's how that went. <laughs> All right, next next question. <laughs> no, it's work in progress. It's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. Thanks, it is amazing. That was actually an improvement. You ended with something positive. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and God loves us all. There you go. True. He yeah. says he says it as he winces. <laughs> his little Jansen is is like, but he doesn't love me. <laughs> Phil Campbell does a three-part post on Janeth- Jansenism. We're gonna have to do an episode on Jansenism because I don't I don't think that word means what you think it means. Jansenism. Yeah, I think it imply, Im, I think it applies to the heresy of Jansenism. Yeah, yeah, but like which was mostly about how grace acts in people's life. It wasn't really and yeah, it wasn't as it's much like, about rigorism. Like it was involved, but it was actually more about grace. It was very close to Calvinism. Yeah. And now I am going to teach some kids a lesson. 
I choose to take that literally. Just the Shelbyville! Yes, Bart's a tutor now. Tutan, son! Tutan! Now we're going to do a little shout-out right now. Yeah, so we re we've received two <laughs> reviews on our uh, that, iTunes. That, that doubled our reviews. It did, actually. So it's a 200% increase. So... Hey, um, this guy's a global warmer. Yeah, so we've got... Oh, shoot. Somebody who believes in global warming likes us. That's stupid. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh-oh. Just kidding. We love you, global warmer, whoever you are. So we received a great interview... Or great review from gg 2019 who says love it very informative about topics not frequently talked about within our catholic faith thanks for promoting tradition and spreading the love of the tlm and more importantly our lord thanks for the comment gg it is pronounced tome tome oh tlm the yes. tome no, no. tome okay Give it a shot. Okay. No. Okay. So <laughs> the she and she gave us five stars. Right. Thanks, Gigi. Thanks. Gigi. The the next review we received was from a guy by the name of Global Warmer. I don't want to know how he warms gl the globe, but you know, I'm sure it's illicit. Uh, so he gave Maybe us down an, by the pond, <laughs> relaxing. <laughs> taking off his coveralls uh so he says worth the listen five stars i'm glad a friend introduced me to this podcast great topics so far this isn't just for trads the discussions are relevant to all catholics that's awesome especially this most recent one yeah now notice it is only worth a listen that's true just a singular listen just a Stop singular listen you've heard it now from the an official clergyman it's yes. only worth a uh, listen. listen. Okay. Yeah, only yeah. worth a listen. listen. <laughs> this is the one to listen to. Just this one. Stop listening to anything else after this talk today. Um, I'm looking oh, here at the show notes. Who put in this I love Lent? Exclamation point. Who doesn't? That was totally him. That was me. Would you like to well, I was elaborate thinking like, on that? This is the last Sunday before Lent for us. And okay. this is like halfway through Lent for probably when we're listening to this so we're we're doing great so far in Lent. yeah we're doing great i hate Lent. i'm yeah, i've been dreading it i got a dairy queen blizzard yesterday and we're gonna go for one tonight and i don't know how yeah i hope Lent's half done by the time i'm listening to this again because i hate Lent. so no oh, no you love oh. it I love, yeah how do you feel father how Steve? do you feel about Lent? about Lent? actually to that point i really like it a lot more now than I did before. Um, I was very much in that boat because for me, the biggest thing that I detest is fasting. And um, kind of to this point, one of the things I think is unfortunate about the way we talk about Lent in the church is that, uh, you know, when people talk about giving something up for Lent, we'll say, okay, you know, to fast, maybe just like don't eat chocolate or something like, or don't, you know, it's all this don't eat this in particular or don't do this in particular. I'm fasting from some recreation or whatever, you know, people come up with ideas like this, trying to be inventive about the fasting when really fasting is about not eating food, right? <laughs> Strictly speaking, that's what fasting is about. <laughs> and so um, it was something I, I got onto. I was thinking about when, when Jesus talks about fasting regularly and, uh, uh, you know, and, and the examples as well about 
that. So the whole thing about fasting is that it's 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 about not eating as much, taking a meal off or not eating as much or doing like a bread and water fast or something like that. And that's been something that was uh, very difficult for me because I want to eat and I love to eat. I really enjoy the whole experience of food. <laughs> so uh, actually it was Chris, when we when I was in Sarnia, we had a evangelization team that uh, Chris joined in on. And one day he was saying he felt that the Lord was uh, saying that we should be doing some fasting in preparation for whatever the next stages would be in the group. Chris oh. was, wait, Chris was your like impetus for fasting? Yeah. That's, <laughs> wow. Wow. Notice I'm not making these jokes right now. Yeah. <laughs> you started it. Um, but anyway, so what happened is Chris uh, had suggested that we try fasting. It was something he thought that the Lord was saying to him. And so um, I was like, that's interesting because, you know, there's obviously precedent for that, for praying for something very serious. And we hadn't really tried it. We were always just praying for things, but not praying and fasting. So uh, I was like, yeah, I'm up for it. Let's try it. You know, I'm going to hate it, but I'll try it. And Chris was going to try it too. So then the next day, Chris calls me up and he's like, hey, man, like, are things getting weird? <laughs> what do you mean? He's like, everything's going wrong. Like, it's just all kinds of stuff is getting crazy, spiritual, spiritually speaking. There were hot dogs and, just walking around his hallway no, in circles. No, no. Like, what the heck? Spiritually yeah. speaking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 Chris starts having hallucinations. The hot dogs are calling me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so what happened was... Uh, you know, we were commenting on that. We were noticing that as soon as we started fasting, that there was this greater spiritual difficulty that was accompanying it, which immediately signaled to both of us uh, that this was something that was doing a good because essentially the devil in recognizing that we were doing a real good mm -hmm. spiritual act was then trying to deter us and make us frustrated by throwing a whole lot of things in our way. So basically, we then kind of decided to keep it up a little bit more. And for one, for me, one of the things that I really struggled with, and I still do struggle with, is um, the whole, around the whole concept of suffering, of being able to suffer. <laughs> just period. Like, I just, I'm so adverse, naturally speaking, to suffering that every time, like, I read about the saints and I hear the beautiful examples of how they would suffer and how they would desire suffering and they're seeking for suffering and they're, you know, you see them wanting it. I'm like, okay, I know that's a good and holy thing, but in my head, I couldn't get it straight. Like that was anything beyond just a super saint kind of idea. Like the, the canonized saints, that's their jam. But how can I really desire suffering? Like I figured I, I've got to have some kind of backward other side seat to this whole show because it didn't make sense to me how I could really suffer. Um, oh, no, man. it's interesting you say that though, that things started to rear up mm -hmm. as soon as you started fasting. I was reading an article on 1 Peter 5. Actually, I think you posted it to Chris by Eric Sammons. Yeah. And he, he talked about how St. John Cassian um, said, often you need to tackle the vices in order. And that for most people, you know, defeating one vice, you know, the, the other ones on the list depend on you defeating the first ones on the yep. list. So, but he gave them in the order St. John Cassian of gluttony first, yeah. then fornication, avarice, anger, sadness, acedia, vainglory, pride, 
but he put that right at the head of the list and yeah. you know that brought some spiritual warfare to you guys from the sounds of it yeah yeah oh it definitely did it definitely i, did. I see that right off the bat yeah there's um there's a great book by kevin vost um lo- that looks at um the seven deadly sins and it, and it gets it goes into greater detail about that uh about that very point that there's all these death dealing daughters that are mm. involved with these major capital vices um that you know that they're going to show up you know when you start attacking one you know it's uh it's crazy it's crazy a, a great book i recommend if you're trying to grow in virtue um it's a definite if you're not, into that sort of thing. If yeah, you're, yeah, yeah if you're into growing and yeah, <laughs> So, yeah, definitely a great book if you're looking at trying to figure out what your predominant fault is and then how to how to battle it, um, practically speaking. So, But anyway, the, the short of it is that eventually I started to um, be able to learn how to suffer a little bit. I'm still not on top of it, but like at least I know how to deal with it a little bit more. Fasting is a good, and, good and way it, for that because it's so well, constant, exactly. right? You're like, I'm hungry. Why am I hungry? Like, should I be hungry? Why shouldn't I just eat? Like, it makes yeah. you just think of it. Like, but it's very like it's not like you're like being like martyred or tortured. It's just like oh, exactly. It's like it's a, a very, very simple level. Like, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I I started finding an appeal to it, and I started finding every time I was thinking about being hungry, it lifted my heart in prayer that I would then mm. be like, oh yeah, I remember why I'm hungry. This is on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so then I'd offer it up in prayer. And I started finding other things in my life just started becoming more well ordered, like, mm. like just just like you were saying about the the the, the order of those uh, vices. You look and great, so, by the way. You look great. Thank you, you. Look, you look great. Thank so. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there is something to, to be said though. So when when we started doing that, you and I were probably about the same size in terms of weight. Yeah. Like you shortly thereafter decided that this was enough i'm gonna fight even harder and you did a you did a hardcore fast like you really you and you dropped a hundred pounds in a year yeah but i mean that went from fast into diet so i mean that became a different thing but it did give me the strength and the impetus to be able to say no to things which Mm -hmm. before i didn't have before it was like Man, I could go for some Dairy Queen right now, yeah, and did. I was on my way. Right, there was nothing stopping me the moment I had a craving for some kind of food, uh, and I just kind of always made the excuse before of, well, you know, like you only live once, yeah, so might as well enjoy it. Like I always thought life would be too burdensome and frustrating to have to constantly manage what I'm eating and stuff like that, and I ended up discovering a way to. Uh, uh, live with it and be happy with it and I enjoy what I eat so I mean like it's not really a problem now I mean though there are times like right now I'm working on a little bit more which is why at dinner I was like seeing the pie coming out going I hate you Julie yeah Julie was just like <laughs> testing it with pie yeah that was funny but um, anyway so all of this is going to go back to say with Lent that to do things like increasing the fasting um, looking at almsgiving and looking at increasing prayer, I think if we come from that approach of not, oh shoot, there's a whole bunch more things I have to do um, and this is going to make my Lent really tiring and whatever, it's more of an opportunity to say, okay, where are the areas where I really need to grow and I really need to pray into? What is something that God can reveal in me and 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 
cut out those areas of vice. And so, and it, and it really, really works. Like when we, and I, so, I mean, I think it's something that we shouldn't be relegating only to Lent. Lent, we should be honing in those skills more. But in a certain sense, we should be doing it year round. Like when I talk to <laughs> Andrew, for example, Andrew Caldas, um, he talks about how in the, uh, um, pardon me, among the uh, Coptic Coptics. Thank you. For some reason, I, Chaldean was stuck in my head. And I'm like, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Coptics, they fast pretty much year round. There's yeah. very brief moments in which they're not doing any kind of fasting at all, usually during the main high celebrations. But then there's always some form of fasting going on throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So it's something that they're just used to on a regular basis. And so I think, you know, the more we're always keeping ourselves on top of things, it's, it's about asking the Lord always to help us to grow in that virtue. Like going back to this whole diet thing of when I, after we went on the fasting and then I started dieting, um, I one day basically woke up in the morning and I was having aches in my knees and stuff and I was tired and frustrated and I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm 30, I guess 35 years old, 34 years, 34 years old at the time. Why am I struggling with these basic things? This is ridiculous. Like, I can't live my life like this. And so I said, I got to make some kind of change. So change number one, I said, no desserts. Just not eating desserts, just cutting them all out, none of them, not going near them. And that day went into work and somebody had brought in a big, huge plate of cookies and chocolates and all stuff that looked super delicious. And they're passing them around. They're like, oh, Father Steve, here, have some, have some candy. And I'm like, no, thanks. I'm good. They're like, oh, we can't eat this all ourselves. Like, you got to have some. And I said, no, I'm, I'm off desserts right now. And they're like... But it's still like another couple weeks till Lent. I'm like, yeah, this is not a Lent thing. This is a I'm fat thing. Yeah. And they were looking at me like, oh, just do it later. Do it when Lent starts, right? That's the perfect time to start. But that's exactly the kind of mentality we often have. We're always waiting for that time. There's a time ahead that we say, that's the time to finally kick my button gear. Instead of saying, why not just now? You know, I mean, we do want Lent is there to help bring our attention back because we typically aren't doing these things on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. We keep getting forgetful. And so it's a reminder built into the liturgical year mm -hmm. so that we stop and pause and go, oh, yeah, I need to reinforce, you know, these areas of my life where I need to grow. Yeah, and a lot of things you trim up during Lent, too, you're supposed to just maintain or like some of them you can maintain, yeah. right? Like exactly. Like and it might diet. take on a yeah. different form. But yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it's true. It's a great so story. it's really a lot about the attitude with which you go into it. Yeah. You know, if you if you're thinking of the, oh, you know, as soon as it done, as Lent hits, there's all these things I'm not going to be able to do. Uh, then you're thinking of from the negative perspective of what I'm lacking, and then you're almost in a sense idolizing the things you're going to lose, and I think almost does the opposite effect during Lent because then we're sitting there longing for the joys of that ice cream longing for the joys of doing that activity I like doing that I said no to. And then we wait till Sunday. Sunday's the big release day that I can finally do what I wanted to do. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, but, but I think it's that kind of attitude that can almost go contrary to what Lent really needs to do in us is to detach ourselves 
from those uh, uh, the joys of earthly pleasures. It's a very Carmelite thing for me to say. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Sorry, I've been talking too much. You guys say yeah, things. It's not. It's it's great to have a priest on the podcast. Hey, we've man. had a uh, we've had a deacon. So this is our second uh, official man of the cloth. <laughs> and as soon as you are consecrated a bishop, we'll have a bishop. It's oh, <laughs> better only chance. <laughs> Spare us all, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, before we get into our main topic, um, wanted to give a quick shout out. We've gotten um, a few fantastic uh, comments we received uh, from, uh, we got a really sweet message from, again, from Dan, who listens oh, Dan. Uh, very frequently. Another one from Brian. He's really looking forward to the uh the podcast uh, with uh, no Brian. I'm not doing the luminous luminous mysteries for Lent. Oh no! Did you see the comment? Yeah, and no. <laughs> How? Oh yeah, because you have access to the admin. Yeah, that's right. And I was like, perfect. Looking around, I see my name. No, that's right. I'm taking the surprise away from all of you. Like, just like trying to. Do- they were going to like slip you the question. Oh, Aaron, are you going to do the Luminous gonna, Mysteries for Lent? Yeah, Brian's like, you should ask Aaron if he's going to do the Luminous Mysteries for Lent. So, yeah. No, we're going to talk about the Luminous Mysteries probably Change like next, next podcast. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, we're going to. We'll have an about. entire segment on the Luminous Chaplet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could talk about the Rosary in that one, too. Yeah, we should. The, the, the real one. Yeah. Uh, did you see my comment? No. Oh, well, yeah, I think so. I don't remember. About, about how I feel like the whole, the, uh, the Blessed Mother, if, if St. Peter came to her and said, hey, I want you to add some stuff into your rosary, she'd be like, no problem. Anything you say. Because she would be subservient to the church. If if St. Peter went to her and was like, you should ordain McCarrick, would would Mary be okay with that? Would Mary be okay with what? Him ordaining McCarrick and raising him to the... He's already ordained. And to become a cardinal? Like, Peter, just because you're a successor of Peter doesn't mean you're doing smart things. And also, once again, we'll get into it, but like when JP2 promulgated... The luminous mysteries. He didn't add them as like a separate set of mysteries. He added as like a temporary chaplet for the year. It was very clear how well, he, he wrote didn't. It. He didn't. Huh? We we should talk about this another time. All right, we're kind of <laughs> gonna, we're <laughs> There's a lot we could go into. Yeah. That crazy yeah, yeah, freaking yeah. troll. Put it this way: the the you're, you're welcome. The, you're the welcome. preview of this will be that Pope John Paul II never said, please insert these into every rosary brochure that is ever printed from here on out. And then I guess we'll get into more of it later. You won't have to be that specific. Well, when he said you don't have to do them, I think he meant you don't have to do them. Oh, no, you don't have to do them. Yeah, but he said said that. So, like in in the document that he promulgated it with. Yeah, no, that's, of course you don't have to do them. Nobody's required to do them. But also, no one does any harm by doing. No, I yeah, I just it's it's a, it's a preference. Yeah, some people like to praying do. with the luminous mystery. Some don't. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, but you don't. No one does any wrong by not doing it. My point would be that it's it's not part of the rosary proper. Is it? Hmm. Is it officially? Yeah. 
No. The rosary came from heaven. The Servite rosary came from heaven. The Luminous Mysteries did not come from heaven. They're a good chaplet. He is right. He is right on that point. When Mary says pray a third of the rosary every day. What's a third of four? What's a third of four? One point six 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 six. No, it's just point six 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 six. I sure hope that's not the argument. This is fun. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm just trying to pull something up here before we actually get into this. So bear with. You know, it'd be like if Pope Francis issued the ecological mysteries. I would not say they're part of the rosary. Yeah. yeah. That would make no sense, though, because the luminous mysteries are actually about the life of Christ. Oh, no, so. I, they're beautiful subjects yeah. for meditation. They're I think, just, Matt, like, if, the, if they started adding the Divine Mercy Chaplet to, like, all the mystery pamphlets. Like, like just because the Divine Mercy is prayed on rosary beads, it's not, a, it's not part of the rosary. It's not part of the rosary. Just like the luminous mysteries are beautiful subjects for meditation, prayed on rosary beads, but they're not part of the rosary. Also, yeah, the luminous mystery just—they are different in kind, though. You are talking about something that's made to be prayed as rosary because yeah. you're praying the hail mary. But they're different prayers. in kind because it's just a different miss. It's just but a different. The meditation. three sets of mysteries came from Our Lady to Saint Dominic. The uh-huh. fourth set came from Pope John Paul II to, well, some guy in Malta, so, yeah, who was like a super Marian dude. Yeah, yeah, but like Our Lady gave us the rosary. Pope JP two gave us the luminous chaplet. So that's, could could Our Lady not be working through the Pope? Well, is, he didn't even claim that. Like, just just like Our Lady worked through St. Dominic? No, no, no. Now you're claiming something that was never claimed. St. Dominic said Our Lady gave this to me. Pope JP2 yeah. didn't. Yeah. That's like, true. Like Mary came I, in an apparition to St. Dominic. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. this. Yeah. I just rosary. hate that people say this is church. now a part it's of the rosary. Just, it's just not exclusive to Our Lady because the rosary was yeah. prayed prior to Our Lady giving it to St. Dominic. Yeah, yeah. But the rosary in its present form was given to St. Dominic. Yeah. Minus the Luminous Mysteries. So now she, we added more. Yeah, but she didn't. So what's wrong with that? So she missed well, something? Like, it just came, that's, yeah, it just that's no, the, comes at a weird it's, time. It's, with it's the enhancing water. it in the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, but you, you can enhance on something Mary gave anyone? Yeah. I, I don't think If she can. gave something for a different time period. But she well, didn't that, give it. Like, that is modernism. That's what we that keep saying. Super, she yeah. didn't give it. And also, she, JP2 gave it. She yeah. didn't. Like, yeah, like, that's, Mary didn't appear to JP2 know. and yeah. say, like, pray these luminous mysteries. So, like, it doesn't have the same weight as, like, the other oh, ones. Oh, it doesn't Mary have came. the same weight? So yeah. What? Well, like, so I what? I don't see people, the contradiction Because people treat it with the same weight because they put it in the brochures and, like, it's just, like, the luminous mysteries. So... Yeah, it's uh, people can pray them if they want to. Yeah, yeah. but like we, people can like, pray them. Yeah, just like you can pray. I mean, you could make up your own subjects. Saint Louis de Montfort talks about making up your own subjects to meditate on on yeah. rosary beads, but he never said yeah. those are rosaries. He said pray the joyful mysteries, the sorrowful and the glorious. Yeah, he didn't say. Except for this is coming from the Pope. Yeah, so it's kind of a bit different because it's coming from the Pope. Well, a he did. It's, it, to, to me, it sounds a little bit like splitting hairs. Well, like, I, I, I it, understand it, it, the argument. No, you're, you're not if coming you in at the right say, like, We come in and say, like, we don't yeah. pray the luminous mysteries, and then yeah. people, like, attack us first. Yeah. So we're kind of responding well, to attacks. Well, no, that's a problem, too. So, like... No, no, no. There's nothing... This is a trad podcast, right? Yeah. So, like, it's just, like, we, like, bitch about the luminous mysteries, and then, like, everyone laughs. It's like a club. Just like, it's what we do. Do you hate the luminous mysteries too? Me too. No, (laughs) but I just yeah. 
I mean, they're they're nice, like you said, they're nice meditation yeah. pieces. I mean, like it's hey, a separate chaplet. It, it's as yeah, far as it's I'm like concerned. it's like you could lexio divina these things yeah. very easily. Beautiful. I, it's subjects not, it's to not clicking divina. with you, is it? What's like, that? It's not clicking with you, is it? Like no, the, I, I think I'm seeing this from a different perspective. Like, I mean, even if you were to say, for example, uh, when people do like a scriptural rosary. Okay, so people will add on all kinds of meditations for each individual Choice mystery, right? Glorious, yeah. yeah, yeah, and they'll throw in every single Hail Mary. They'll be like, "Now I'll meditate on this scripture. Yeah. Now I'll meditate on this scripture," and they'll like add on extra lines and stuff like that. Does one have to pray the rosary like that? No, of course not. No, um, but people will publish scriptural rosaries and put mm-hmm. things like that for people to do so that they can if they want to, right? And having the luminous mysteries put it's into a pamphlet that has. Uh, the three mysteries plus plus the luminous does not mean that anyone looking at that goes, oh, the luminous are here. Well, I guess like there's no way I can avoid it. You can just read the first three. But it doesn't right say there. that. It doesn't say that. It Nobody doesn't... says that. They say luminous are on Thursday. Nobody yeah, says this it. is optional. It's presented yeah. as oh, well. part of the rubrics now. If rubrics exist anymore, there's no know. rubrics to the rosary. We'll per try se. to try to pray anything but the luminous mysteries on a Thursday and see what people say to you, right? Like, it's like insane. People like I don't know. We've all been attacked. Like Gigi was like yeah. sending Matt, uh, like you'll read this, like find out more. But like people like this is actually like a concern people have. Like when they find out we don't like the luminous mysteries or we don't want to pray them, yeah. it's like the end of the world for them for some reason so like i you probably just haven't experienced this because but like people just need to chill their tits but they're not i guess we need to chill our tits too but like that like so we're just coming at from like a reactionary standpoint yeah i I don't go next mass or next time you play a rosary as a priest be like i don't want to pray the luminous mysteries today because i want to do the traditional mysteries and see what happens and then like phone in and see what you yeah. tell us what happens but you know what that can be said about doing anything that is vaguely out of the norm for whatever a community is doing in prayer people are insane when they're in community yeah. in prayer but and just in general like i know you come into the adoration chapel and you sit there and you want to pray and there's like one person who's a little bit noisier than the others and then everyone starts just losing their minds because that person is making a little too much noise or something like that or someone when they pray the rosary and you have a group that has like 1500 different extra prayers at the end yeah you know people add on those things and then like a litany on top of it all yeah, and they yeah, go through yeah. so many things oh and if you don't do it and you're the one leading the rosary and you do something else and they're like why is he skipping the uh the prayer to saint charbel you know and you're yeah. like what <laughs> like, i don't Actually. i don't even know what that is but it it People get neurotic. Everything outside the first Our Father and after the last Glory Be, are ex- they're extraneous to the Rosary. Yeah, actually, Saint Louis de Montfort is very clear about that too. Yeah. But to me, this wait, is the, the Apostles' Creed is not. No, the be- the intro was given to what? No, was it the intro like I don't, the I don't the Apostles' so. Creed and the three Hail Marys. No, and but but to me, this would be equivalent to heck. Even if Cardinal Burke came up with some beautiful meditation saying i'm going to add four more stations of the cross he's going to fall a fourth time he's going to you know just if they were wonderful things to meditate on i would say that we don't actually need more in there and those aren't really part of the stations of the cross you can meditate on those extra things if you want and they're they may be fruitful and beautiful but like to me that would be the equivalent of the reaction i get when i say our lady gave us this gift 
And then somebody, no matter how holy you think he was or is, um, saw that potentially there was some sort of deficiency in it and you need to add to it. That's, that's where I come from. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm kind of also in the same, in the same boat, because I mean, if you think about the luminous mysteries in comparison with the other, the the other three sets, the luminous mysteries are strictly focused on the life of Christ. And there's really only one mystery in there that pertains to our lady, right? The wedding feast of Cana, the rest of them don't, don't they don't really apply to Mary, right? Like the proclamation of the kingdom. I mean, that's kind of even a random thing. To it just seems on. like it's added for filler to that one. Like, oh, we need to come up with the fifth yeah. one. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like having the ability to meditate on the Eucharist, I was like, yeah. Like when it first came out, I was like, yeah, like we should be drawing attention to the institution of uh, of the Holy Eucharist. But, but yeah. Our Lady is connected to those things. But she too. wasn't there. Oh, just because she wasn't physically present? Yeah. Is that a thing for you? I never thought about that way. Is that like... That's something that... Just, like, that, it's that not I mean, enough? if it... Yeah, it just doesn't have that Marian character. Well, Mary wasn't there at the Agony of the Garden either. Ooh, Carmelite. <laughs> that's that's, that's no, I, I never thought about that but yeah i could i could see I don't that. Know, I don't but, know. but even Maybe beyond all this know. stuff if we're going to talk about the luminous mysteries i mean how did it develop it was an outgrowth of you know the lady trying to mimic the psalter of monks right the monks would pay what lady laity <laughs> The, the monks would pray their 150... Sorry, I'm just hearing body. Their, their 150 <laughs> psalms, and and the laity felt a little left out, saying, well, what can we do? So they were recommended to play. <laughs> they were. They were recommended to pray. I think originally, like, this most primitive form was 150 Our yeah. Fathers. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were there? The Psalter. Nice. Like, I just remember reading it. Yeah. I mean, eventually, <laughs> I think some local forms brought that down to 150 Aves. Yeah. But then Our Lady kind of came in and sanctified this practice, saying, okay, the, and that's the rosary is called Our Lady's Psalter, mm-hmm. 150. So when you pray all three sets of mysteries, the only three sets of mysteries in a day, you pray 150 Hail Marys. And actually, when you pray the intro three, 153 Hail Marys, that's the exact number of fish that were caught in the nets when they were filled to almost bursting. 153. There's that nice connection there, too. Yeah, how how that, many right? Psalms are there, too? 150. It depends 150, on what. Yeah. Does it have a translation thing with the Psalms? Like yeah. 151. Or? I think the Protestants split Psalm 9 into two different Psalms. So up to 9, they're the same, and then they the split name, off yeah. from there. Yeah, if it's Our Lady's Psalter, I didn't really think Our Lady was all that salty. Psalter. There's a P. <laughs> Did you ruin the joke? <laughs> So we're going to change. Yeah, womp womp there. So yeah, we're going to change. Yeah, do we want to get back on to Lent? No, we're, remember that we weren't even we, talking We about did a wreck your Lent before you, or prep your Lent before you wreck your Lent podcast. Like you, oh, okay, would I you, to that one. You, I'm behind. You've, you pretty much said like in a very pastoral way what we we said. It was kind of great. I was like, wow, like this has nice got the stamp of the Diocese of London here. Can, we, can, we, can, we, like, can you be like a delegate from the diocese to be like, yes. What they said is right. Yeah, but we're, I think we're going to change this up and we're going to change this into the John Paul II podcast, um, the follow-up bonus podcast, whatever we want to call Ooh, it. The Not John bon- Paul II cast. Yeah. 
because we've talked a lot about John Paul II. What were we so so let's let's uh, now that we've sufficiently talked about the luminous mysteries, have we? Have we know. convinced Father that they're not actually part of the Rosary yet? Yeah. yeah. No. Do, 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 do you have two hundred Psalms then? What's that? Don't you like this? Do I have two hundred Psalms? Yeah. Where are these other Psalms come? Well, the fifty, like one hundred and fifty, and then fifty luminous, or fifty like hail Mary. Fifty luminous Psalms. Fifty hail Mary. No, no, no. <laughs> right, Our Lady Psalter. Totally different in kind of talking about structure of Scripture versus yeah. uh, a prayer that we've been given. No, it was called Our Lady Psalter because there uh, the one hundred and fifty Aves mimic yeah. the 150 songs oh i totally get the point you because guys are coming from no but i don't see the there being any issue with appending and adding on to that as and a I separate think chaplet also, but but as we'll see the difference is when you call it a separate chaplet which uh, it is you're making it sound like it's a <laughs> it's its own isolated prayer whereas well, like, i would think one can just as well include it as their rosary prayer. No, see, that's where we think the imprudence of JP2 comes into this. Like, he says, like, Mary, like this thing Mary gave us is deficient, so, like, I'm going to use my authority to, like... Well, it's actually, he... he the way he brings... So I don't think of him saying it's deficient. Did he ever say it was deficient? Well, like, it's... That's sort of an implication. It's impl well, it's implied. implied. If you're saying, like, we have to add to it. Like, what can you add to something Mary's giving? It's like the Mass, right? Like, we need... Well, he didn't say we have to add to it. So he we don't. So, but if you it. don't have to add it... Then it's not part of the original. If it doesn't, it's not needed. Are you gonna read JP 2s uh... Yeah. Do you want me to read the par paragraph? Yeah. This is helpful. In, in typical JP two fashion. Recto tono. Here's the length of this letter. Yeah. Everything's long that he writes. <sighs> Personalism. Oh yeah. yeah. Phenomenology. Bill, Bill phenomenology. You should listen to like he's moderate. You'll love it. You'll love it. This is gonna take a lot of editing. Um. I don't know that I'm going to be able to find this friggin'. You said you knew where it was. You're a doctor. JP2 just choke slammed you. <laughs> choke, choke slam! slam. <laughs> beep, 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 Here, come, here comes the judge. What else? Giants. While he's looking for this, what else were we talking about with JP2? Like, I forget. So we talked We talked we with uh, with Phil from Unum Sanctum Catholicum. Mark we talked right? about... Uh, yeah, we talked about John Paul II and like how trads can really like how difficult it is for a lot of us to process the <clears> idea <throat> of, of someone so I mean, he he did some good things, but he said some pretty bad stuff. And and it's hard to to really process that in light of him being called a saint, a blessed uh, someone who can, you know, who lived a life of heroic virtue. It's, it's hard to really reconcile like him yeah. with St. Catherine yeah. Christiana. Je l'ai trouvé. Ah bien. What am I doing? Yeah, yeah. Reading it? Um, Editing Chris. So Et maintenant, nous lisons la texte. So, Très bon. <laughs> this is from the encyclical where uh, JP2 promulgated the idea of the luminous chaplet mm. and in paragraph 19 he mm. says of the many mysteries of christ's life only a few are indicated by the rosary in the form that has become generally established with the seal of the church's approval the selection was determined by the origin of the prayer which was based on the number 150 the number of the psalms in the psalter i believe however so even there i think i mean he's not using the sea of peter language we believe I believe, however, that to bring out fully the Christological depth of the rosary, it would be suitable to make an addition to the traditional pattern, which, 
while left to the freedom of individuals and Mm -hmm. communities, could broaden it to include the mysteries of Christ's public ministry between his baptism and passion. Mm -hmm. So he actually says, um, this edition of these new mysteries, without prejudice to any essential aspect of the prayer's traditional format, Mm -hmm. is meant to give it fresh life and to enkindle renewed interest in the rosary's place within Christian spirituality. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's just back up, though. Like, as a priest, I'm really getting sick of this. Spring, the, the springtime of Vatican II, like the springtime, like this was supposed to bring fresh life, stuff like this, just like the mass yeah. was supposed to bring fresh life. Since Vatican II, we've seen, what What are the stats? How many people believe in the real presence? Like 20%? I think that's like being uh, generous. That's, that's being generous. generous. And like 50%, no, more than 50% of Catholics are contracepting. So like we kept getting fed this new springtime garbage. It actually is not true. So, like, why should we believe that this new springtime with the rosary is going to be any better? Like, I guess that's like, that's that's where trads are kind of fed up with this crap. It's just like we've seen it all with a lot of stuff, and mm. we're just not giving this the benefit of the doubt anymore. There's no there's no trust. So, that's mm. that's where we're at. And I just took from that, like, there's nothing in there saying this is now a part of the rosary. Yeah, there's be, nothing have in its there own day saying included. This should be printed in every brochure that is ever issued from now on out about the rosary. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of how people took it. I mean, they yeah. just like go try to find one that yeah. doesn't say Thursday is Luminous Mysteries. I mean, J- JP2, he like obviously he issued it with probably good intentions, mm-hmm. whether or not they were realized. That's, I guess, beyond this conversation. Well, maybe Aaron wants to talk about that, but that's. That's the visceral reaction I've always had against them, that they, you know, people just ran with this saying, this is now how the church prays the rosary. Yeah, I think that uh, what it does show is, at least in part, that it is a way that people uh, did take to, that they did like it. So his his purpose was to say, here's something to help you know, reintegrate people into coming back to praying the rosary and obviously became popular. But if otherwise it wouldn't be printed the way that it is. If they weren't praying the rosary before, did the luminous mysteries bring people back to the rosary? I don't know because I don't know any stats on the subject. Yeah. And it may be like, you know, to, to concede a point, I'm not saying that it succeeded. I'm not saying that it made it superior I'm not saying that it improved upon what Our Lady gave. None of those things I'm trying to say. I'm I'm actually saying your point that uh, it's it's an option. It's something people can pray. A lot of people like to pray it. But my bigger point is when you when you guys struggle with people attacking you, saying you know why why aren't you praying this the way it's supposed to be prayed? We're supposed to pray the luminous mysteries. Blah 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 blah. Uh, it really comes down to people can can get really possessive of their devotions. And if you don't pray it the way we pray it, whether that's a larger universal we or a, this is the five ladies in this little prayer group we, um, either way, it becomes very exclusive. We're, we're bad at that. I find it's a problem in the church on a whole that we become very cliquey and then immediately reject other groups. Whenever we have like our own group and then we sit there, we band together and we console each other, pat each other on the back and say, we're all so hard done by. We're the ones who are always having a hard time. Hey, 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 Gracie, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so the the point is, I agree. You guys don't have to pray the Luminous Mysteries and you should feel no compulsion to need to pray them. And if you find a greater devotion and a love in being able to pray just the three mysteries, uh, 
that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I think there's nothing wrong with, nor should we diminish those who do want to pray the luminous mysteries as though you're doing some weird extra prayer that you know Mary never wanted and that as though it's a bad thing. It's, well, it's something that okay. was given but through it the has, church. It, it, JP2 also just has a habit of this. Yeah. Like the indult for North America to receive communion uh, in the hand was given by JP2. Was it not? No, it was... I think it was, was, I thought it was Paul the Sixth. Was it Paul the yeah. Sixth? Yeah. Before, yeah. Shoot. No, he did female altar boys. Oh, he did female altar boys. Yeah. yeah. So like you see those concessions. Yeah, like female altar boys. You see the concessions and people take the exception as the rule. That's that's so clear. Like where is the prudence well, yeah, in this, right? True. It's just like, oh, this one place can receive communion on the hand. The whole world blows up with it. You yeah. say, well, this one place can have female altar boys if there's not enough boys. And you know yourself, yeah. I'm assuming, that whenever you get girls on the altar, it drives the men away. So like just this this imprudence after imprudence after imprudence uh, it, it really like throws into question JP2 and his his yeah his canonization like a lot of people have an issue with how can someone be a saint who did so many imprudent things because becoming a saint he's supposed to say he did his office well so it's a, it, it really yeah it kind well, of yeah. I think you also don't want to put everything equate everything on the same level because saints themselves also are not perfect I know it's a weird thing to say but like saints aren't perfect their perfection is found in continually growing in holiness and throwing themselves before the mercy of God. They reach greater perfection as they reach their death, and that's usually their death is the biggest point of the proof of their life. Um, there are many things that pe even if you, if you look at some examples of saints in the past who drove their, um, their, their other like brothers and sisters in their communities insane. Um, I can't remember who it was. Actually, I was having a conversation with Chris about this uh, some time ago. I can't remember who the saint was, but he was a monk, I believe, um, or a brother, you know, whatever, in a community of men. And um, all the other, when his cause for canonization was being brought up, uh, his own brothers were like, what are you talking about? Not this guy. Like, don't this, do you realize how much he drove us nuts in, in our, in our uh, monastery? Like he was, and he had a bad temper and he had all these other issues and whatever, but he's like one of the big male saints that we know in the church. I, I can't remember which one. Who is this? But, yeah. Uh, I because, feel like. Yeah. I, I, think, do, I don't remember. I don't remember. I just remember reading some th things of this kind of a matter that there are situations where saints are not, they're not always in every single thing. Uh, totally on top of it. I, I'm I'm reading a biography of Saint Catherine of Siena, and yeah. that doesn't hold up with what you're saying. Like she didn't eat for like 50 days at a time on a stretch. Like that's what I call a saint. She was given it was a miracle, and not all saints are given this miracle. Yeah, but like like, and I think Saint Catherine. Of Siena, you're talking about one act that she did. You didn't but live like, with her. You didn't know what it was like every I, day. I would now, be. She would be very virtuous. Very virtuous. Yes. Like any saint would be very virtuous, but what I mean is that their every action doesn't mean that they can't ever make a mistake. Right. Okay, They're not infallible. But, sure, but a I mistake mean. like JP2 did the SEC meetings twice. So like he didn't learn from his mistake. That's the thing. Where like St. Catherine of Siena, she one time uh, gave in to her sister. She loved her sister above God, and this was her big sin in her youth. And she her sister wanted her to like wear uh 
prettier clothes just because like she just you know asked and she like she went be and she caved because she told her confessor later because she loved her sister more than god just kind of in that instance and she cried about that for the rest of her life yeah like that like she went to confession and she would she would sob to her confessor about that uh and you see a lot of similar things with a lot of saints until now now you don't have that you have jp like what like what's because we have greater access to their lives in the past we don't have enough information about the lives of saints like the way that you would write the life of a saint was to you looked at all the best things about them and you wanted to puff them up right this no so it was created in sort of a way to create the best image of that person that's not true because like when we had the devil's advocate they would yeah. purposely weed out the worst things they could about that, and they would try to give all natural causes. Yeah, yeah like even, that, like, even, ridiculous, even the like, best ridiculous, things, like, even you know, the best things they would say, like that wasn't um, that wasn't yeah, a real miracle. Yeah, that was or fake. The, or they would say like, oh, this person like laid, the, you know, they fasted for fifty days. Could there have been an alternative motive for that? And they would dive into it. They'd be yeah. like, that person yeah. was full one, of pride. One Why? girl, like her canonization. I don't know. Matt was saying like she wore a bow in her hair in mm-hmm. her teens. That came up at her canonization. And like she, she didn't, she didn't make it through. So like, she's a blessed. She's a blessed, but she's not a saint. Or uh, yeah. So so and you know. Well, I know the pr- process is not as rigorous as it was before. So like, it just makes us like, how how does the faithful have yeah. like, how can we have as much trust in the process anymore? Right? Like, yeah. it, oh, okay. but but Phil, but Phil with. does a fantastic job yeah. at answering that. Yeah, we had podcast. a fantastic conversation with Phil from. He's Unum Sanctum Catholicum, the blog. And uh, yeah, it actually addressed most of what we were starting to talk about there. So yeah, we should probably Why did he say it? what we were starting to talk about. <laughs> things like the canonization. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. He gets right into it. So, yeah. So we're going to do that. And uh, yeah. So we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We know it's kind of crazy, but uh, thanks again, Father Steve, for joining us. I'm so sorry. It was fun. <laughs> It, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. That was fun. Yeah, you're always welcome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'd be, you'd be more welcome Especially if you didn't bash me so much. I can ruin more podcasts. <laughs> Notice how the one that I'm in is the one that's chaotic and all over the place and we can't figure out what we're doing? Yeah, it's like the Novus Ordo. <laughs> I'm da, da, sorry, I think da, you mean da, da, the da. ordinary form. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're out. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or not. Shit, we don't even have a Twitter. <laughs> That's true. Follow us on Facebook at Theology of the Buddy, on Instagram at Theology of the Buddy. Uh, yeah. If you have any questions, fire them off to us, Theology of the Buddy at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Chris. I, I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. And I'm Father Steve. Theology of the Buddy. Buddy. Watching you from your backyard. And then you're going to transition into Phil Campbell there? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Theology of the Buddy bonus podcast. I have been in the past six months kind of red-pilling about JP2 and what the heck to do about him. So we have with us the regular group and Phil from the blog Unum Sanctum Catholicam joining us once again um, to help me get over this. I'm not going to lie. I just, it irritates me. He's got blog posts saying he doesn't care about JP2 and it doesn't bother him. And I'm not going to lie. Some days I get... But I also have blog posts from before he was a saint arguing against his canonization. 
Yeah. Yeah. I even wrote a letter to the postulator of his cause. I remember, remember that? that letter. Yeah, that letter was amazing. And it was it was a highlight of all the reasons why I was opposed to it. What? Okay, so quickly, I guess, what was on that letter? Do you remember? Uh, why he shouldn't be canonized? I basically, I don't remember the content of the letter very well, but I wrote a letter to the the the, uh, the guy that was in charge of JP2's cause. It was a Polish priest. I can't remember his name. A monsignor. But I basically cataloged all the, the reasons that I said JP2 was, um, I, I said that he tended to say one thing and then communicate a different message through his actions such that it, it confused the faithful over what, what the truth was, uh, that, uh, that you know, we were told that. I think even on your blog, you have a little picture of him underneath saying uh, the distribution of communion is is meant for ordained hands only yeah exactly so i think i brought up several points i brought up points about things he said versus his his discipline in the church where yeah he on my blog i have a picture of him with a quote saying the distribution of communion belongs to the ordained only uh and then nevertheless allowing communion in the hand but then things like um uh, uh, you know asserting that uh you know in redemptor hominis that that you know that christ is the key is the center to human redemption but then also saying may may john the baptist protect islam yeah. or or saying things like that <laughs> where you wonder if you were to take john paul ii holistically as a combination of of his writings and his actions yeah. um any normal person would be confused over what the actual message was supposed to be and so i basically argued as postulator that best john paul ii was a mixed bag and that we don't canonize mixed bags um I didn't doubt that he was that he was personally a pious man with good intentions, uh, but I said there's just too much about his behavior that uh, that was was questionable. Now, an interesting uh, an interesting uh, footnote to that is after the emergence of the um, the Vigano letter yeah, and yeah. the uh, and the widespread abuse cover up in the American church. On my blog, I I did a post where. I, I researched every single person named in the in the Vigano letter and looked at who elevated them um, to the episcopacy and to the cardinalate and John Paul II elevated eighty percent of these men. Now, people immediately say that's not his fault. Like the he didn't know who these guys were. It was the the nuncios and stuff who were recommending them. And and I would say like, well, it's you know I, I was mayor before in a city, you know, and I had to appoint people. Uh, I didn't know who they were, but you know what? I researched who they were yeah. before I appointed them. And if the nuncios are getting these people appointed, then uh, who appointed the nuncios? Like, what's their problem? Why yeah. do why do heterodox theologians like Walter Casper? Why did they keep their positions this whole time? Why why are all these people still around? I mean, he did nothing to discipline them. Um, so uh, this is why you don't rush to canonize somebody from a historical standpoint. It's uh, it, things look different by reference. Um, John Paul II looks pretty good right now compared to Francis, honestly. Right. I'd love to have John Paul II right now yeah. <laughs> compared yeah. to Francis. But uh, it cannot be de denied that all the things Francis is doing is the logical conclusion of things that John Paul II I've started. There's a language like similarity in his theology of the body with Francis. Like there's, it's it's shocking. Like they do seem all on the same tra trajectory. So. Yeah. My my overall synopsis of John Paul II is he was a very well-meaning individual who loved the Lord deeply, but who inherited a church in the chaos of Paul VI's pontificate 
and really bought into the idea of John the 23rd that we needed a new way of presenting the gospel. And for John Paul II, that was going to be the language of personalism, uh, which is really key to reading his, his thought. So John Paul basically thought he needed to reconstitute the entire corpus of Christian teaching but couch it in the language of, of, uh, of personalism and phenomenology, which is why he starts with Redemptus Hominor, uh, Hominor, <laughs> Redemptor Hominus. <laughs> yeah, he starts with uh, Redemptor Hominus and basically says, I'm going to start with the person of Christ and I'm going to touch on every single aspect, you know, throughout his long pontificate. Uh, nothing escaped his, his pen in terms of what he wrote on, whether it was the, the liturgy, moral life, everything. And he he wanted to present it from the point of view of the dignity of the human person, mm. which is certainly a valid way to look at things. Um, but the question is, I think, what, was that a helpful one? Was that helpful to to reconstitute all of Christian teaching um, using this other interpretive key, which is which is personalism? Um, the charge of, against personalism, and I don't think personalism is inherently bad. But the perennial charge against it is that it slips too easily into a kind of subjectivism by focusing uh, very much on the person's experience. Um, and uh, and we can see the fruits of that with, with Francis's idea of, uh, of accompaniment, of his idea of um, pastoral, uh, what's the phrase? I did a whole post about it. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, what am I trying <laughs> to say? Uh, like the... Uh, pastoral applications in concrete circumstances right. you know basically it leads to an elevation of circumstance above everything else right, right, in the moral right. life i think john paul paved the way for that even if he didn't intentionally mean to do that so i see him as a guy who inherited a mess uh said hey we let's try this to clean it up and and let's give john paul credit he did do a lot of good things the church in the early 90s was way better than the church in the 70s okay uh undoubtedly um, if you look at what was going on in the post-conciliar years under Paul VI, uh, John Paul II was better any day. Um, you know, he he did a lot of good things, but it was a mixed bag. Some of his initiatives spectacularly failed. Some of them were just, you know, bad ideas to begin with. I don't think John Paul II intended to become a rock star pope. Uh, I, I doubt that he set out intending to create that persona. Right. He simply wanted. To, he simply thought of it as the world is my church, right. and I want to engage. I want to get out of a Eurocentric view of Christianity. Okay. And so, but he ends up with his world travels being a celebrity pope, and subsequent popes feel like they need to image to mirror that, and so you get Benedict and Francis mirroring that, who don't have near the amount of charisma that John Paul II did, and it becomes more of a show, more of a production. Um, he definitely presided over the mass mediaization of the church, which um, has been horrible, you know, but also, um, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's a mixed bag. But in the end, I didn't think we should canonize a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, and there's the perennial argument over, well, you know, if you're a saint, it just means you're in heaven. That's not just what it means. No. That's no. the essential, that's the primary meaning of a saint, but that's not all that it is. People who are canonized, like St. Charles Borromeo was canonized not only because he was personally holy, but because he was an, a model bishop. That's why they canonized him. They wanted to send a message like, hey, if you want to be a good bishop, this is how you do it. Follow this guy's example. Yeah, or St. Uh, Pope Gregory the Great, I just read on his butlers, just 
but right before this podcast and it is like he was not canonized because he was personally holy he was canonized because the way he he was pope was fantastic and just and exactly. and, and everything he did prior to and like his entire life is is holiness all the way through there's not really too much i know it's, i think sometimes butler sugarcoats or omits things but yep. there's not much you can doesn't seem to be much you could say yeah. what would what what would you say though to to people who are asking about the miracle that is attributed to him like like was it god's will that he become a saint like i mean i don't know for me i mean i've never been i've never been comfortable questioning uh the modern canonizations even under francis so for me he is a saint and uh there's no point in questioning whether it was god's will he became one or not he is um yeah that's where it ends for me um I was willing to question it and fight it all the way up to the day of the canonization. The day the canonization happened, that didn't mean my concerns weren't valid. That didn't mean like, well, I was wrong uh, kissing the Quran. I guess it's not scandalous. I didn't mean, didn't, didn't uh, take that approach. But I took the approach of like, as problematic as these things are, as much of a mixed bag as he was, the church has made a declaration that he's among the blessed. And who am I to, to challenge that? Um, do I want to call into question uh, all of the modern canonizations? Because you really have to. You can't call into question one and then not call into question all of them. People say, well, the procedures have changed so much. And um, it, it's such a it's such an open, it's a Pandora's box once you go down that road. I mean, if he's not a saint, then, uh, then there's no certainty about anything with saints. And uh, maybe maybe in a few moments, if I had time, I could pull up the uh, the post I did about and read a citation uh, about that. But so for me, it's I don't know. I understand that not every saint is as eminently holy as another one. Um, you know, uh, Saint Thomas Becket, uh, for example, whose feast we just celebrated in December. Um, he he's canonized primarily for being martyred. You know, right, yeah. Um, he did he did some good things. He was very zealous for the defense of the church, but even the Pope told him to, to chill out, to, to back down. He didn't. Uh, and what many people don't know, because they only are familiar with the, the Richard Burton version of Beckett's martyrdom, which is a cinematic. Uh, when Beckett was killed, the, the knights did not come into the church to kill him. They walked into the church to talk. They put their swords down and left him at the front door, and they came and talked to Beckett. Beckett became belligerent and shoved them and, and pushed them around. And then they got angry and they grabbed their swords and, and hacked him apart. So his martyrdom was brought on because he physically attacked his killers first. Um, so, like, I think Beckett counts as a martyr, like, barely. Right. You know, yeah. like, they did yeah. not come into that church with the intention of killing him. But my point is, is that uh, some saints are, are more saints than others. Some saints are uh, <laughs> saints for very eminent holiness. Yeah. Other ones are saints because they eked by for some reason, uh, you know, with, with Beckett. Yeah. With Beckett, there was a, a struggle between church and state, and the Pope decided that he needed a, a martyr. The only, okay, I, that all makes perfect sense to me. What really, like, pisses me pisses me off about JP2 is this this industry that's built up around him, and people sell these goods under his, like, name, and now they have more to sell because he's a saint now, right? So, like, oh, <coughs> like Christopher West, Theology of the Body. He's a saint. That's really irritating too. But if if that irritates you, then don't go to San Giovanni Rotondo and see Padre Pio's shrine. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's worse there. I is mean, it, it's it's commercial. It, uh, it, 
it's all commercialized. Yeah. And how how weird is it that it's we'll probably remove this from the podcast, but how weird is it? Like in San Giovanni Rotondo, it's all this commercialization and whatnot. And then there's this dead body just sitting there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, I mean, just that whole experience as a Catholic, you know, this almost leads to a meta question about what does the communion of saints mean in the modern church, in the, the mass media, mass production church, what does the communion of saints mean for the average Catholic? Are they, are they still role models? Are they still people that we seek their intercession or are they the Catholic version of celebrities? Right. Right. I was, I mean, I was against the canonization of mother Teresa also. Right. Yeah. I I had articles about her. I I thought her miracle was dubious. Her, the, 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 the woman who got healed actually relapsed into her condition. Right. And, and she went back to the sisters afterwards and they, they tossed her out because they'd already gotten their miracle and got their their canonization so they didn't need the woman anymore. And her doctor and her husband said that her healing was completely medically medically explainable. Um, so, um, I don't know. It's this cheapening, the cheapening of the saints irritates me, right? Like, that's what this is. It's basically like they, they lower the bar. And like, what yep. what's, what's the point of having saints... If if they're not saintly, that's, what's the point of having a devil's advocate? Like, I mean, that that role has been diminished greatly. Yeah. In the modern church, like, yeah, it used to be so Matt, much. Oh, Matt, tell does you, it exist anymore? It doesn't. But tell your devil's advocate story about the girl with the uh, the she wore the bow in her hair. Oh yeah, that's a uh, blessed Anna Maria Taigi. <clears throat> she, I mean, she was a by all accounts a very saintly woman. You know, she was kind of a cardinals would even come talk to her, and she was a prophetess, and everything that she spoke seemed to have been fulfilled properly. And like she had very clear vision of the future. She was given, you know, pretty clear charismatic gifts. But apparently, her devil's advocate brought up the point that she wore a bow in her hair in her youth, and this was a sign of vanity. Yeah, and, well, the, the devil's advocate, like um, it used to, it, its job was not only to look for faults but to even look at the good things they did and try to suggest ulterior motives yes. for them. So they'd look at a they look at somebody like Mother Teresa who did all these good things and they'd say, could this have possibly been motivated by yeah. pride? And then they would they would look at that and ask those sorts of questions. The thing is nobody asked those questions about uh about John Paul II or about any modern canonization. Um they they, they don't even ask those they're not uh, the scrutinizing is not there. And I think the idea is that I mean I know what the idea is. It's the same idea behind it's the very same mentality when somebody is trying to do something hip for the kids, you know, that like uh, uh, to be relevant, you know, something is always bad when there's a bunch of old guys sitting around room saying the kids is going to love this. <laughs> I, I, I know what the kids like. That's probably the most damaging statement in civilization is I know what the kids are into. Um, and this is what this is really the same attitude behind these modern canonizations is like, I know what the people want. What, what the people want is everyday normal saints like you and I, you know, they they fart, they smoke, they 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 sit around and they scratch themselves. That's the kind of saints we need. That's, you know, they want these. I'm not saying John Paul II is like that, but that's where they're going. They, they kind of want to be like. Aaron, saints are just like you and me. Like, you yeah. don't have to feel bad. Like, yeah. look at this guy. He was a loser, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I lo- you know what I mean? I think that's a reaction, though, because um, in uh, one of your books, uh, <laughs> in one of your books, 
you talk about uh, the England English saints, right? And oh. and they would have herbs, and they and they would have saints where like they'd have a well, and they're like that saint did that there. And there's this this very close connection to all their very local saints. So I think kind of we lost that in the globalization of Catholicism. And maybe they're just trying to replace like, oh, like, you know, like JP2 meant a lot to a lot of people. So they want people to feel that connection because we don't have like local saints anymore. Like probably anywhere in Europe, if you go anywhere and you knew old local history, you could come across some hill where someone did some miracle. Yeah, I had a friend who went to Ireland. She said she couldn't, you know, she... She couldn't go a mile without stumbling across a well or a stone or a something that some saint was there and did something. Yeah, totally amazing. Um, that is that's so real. Like I think that that's what, that's what people want. And I, I get the point. Like you know, you want to be hip to kids, but like you want to be relevant to people's lives, like saints, and that's relevant. If you can literally like look out your back window and you're like, some saint died over there or did some something over there. That's, that's I have cool. a I have a vial of water in my room from St. Derbala's well in Ireland, which was a well where she, rather than be forced into an incestuous union, went to the well and poked her eyes out and washed her fate washed her gouged face in the water of this well. And and of course now it's now an Irish tradition, it's like Oh, this water cures illness of the eyes, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, I have a I have a vial of it there, and uh, and, and yeah, the the saints mean something very different nowadays. I think to to many Catholics, I th- I feel like it's almost a cult of personality. That's what I didn't like about about John Paul II's canonization, um, and then going on to the <clears throat> the canonization of Paul VI, like his non-existent cultus. Like at least John Paul II had an actual cultus. Like there was people out there that loved him. Yeah, Santa Sabita, right? Like, yeah, like where were the people clamoring for Paul the Sixth canonization? Where's the cultus where people are? You know, I mean, it's it's a non-existent cultus. Um, but see, the thing for me as a historian, the process has never been the central point of the canonization. the The process has changed many, many times. I did an article several years ago on my website about canonization in the early church, um, like how saints were declared in the first, second, third, fourth centuries. It's falsely believed that they were declared by acclamation, just spontaneous. That was never the case. I found, I read some literature on it and found some Episcopal um, statements of early bishops saying things like, uh, no person, even if he is a martyr, is to be venerated without the approval of the clergy first. Uh, that this idea that they just spontaneously started declaring someone a saint, that was never the reality. Even even in the case of eminent martyrs like Felicity and Perpetua, the, the local bishop would authorize the, the cultus. But the point is the, the process has changed many, many times. Um, and so for me, the, the modern canonization does not lose its, its uh, theological... Um, efficacy by virtue of like, well, we changed the devil's advocate's role or, or whatever. Now, because there, there's a theological certainty, but remember, theological certainty is buttressed by, by uh, human reason too. Like we're not meant to, we're meant to believe, but not believe blindly, right? right? So you have faith and then you have motives for credibility. Motives for credibility are like arguments from reason that can be brought to buttress faith. Right. What they are doing with canonization is almost throwing out motives of credibility and making us accept it on, on blind faith alone. Um, uh, throwing out the, the, the reasons why, like, uh, like, okay, you're saying so-and-so is a saint. Give me the reasons why yeah. I should, or, or even in the canonization process itself, like we're supposed to just trust the canonization process, even though 
so even though the canonization is made infallible by the declaration of the Pope, why even have a process at all then? You know, well, the process is to ensure that the motives of credibility, that this is not offensive to reason, that people look at it and say this isn't just superstition, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. But uh, if I could read, could I read something? Please. Um, I said, um, okay, so this is from my blog. The quote, uh, the, the article is Thoughts on the Canonization of Paul VI. It's only about six months old that I wrote this. Um, I said, I'm not personally willing to cast doubt on the certitude of the church's entire process of canonization rather than accept that one man has been declared a saint. I understand others are, but that's not a line I'm going to cross. It's much more reasonable for me to shrug and say, well, I guess Paul VI is a saint now, than to try to argue that canonizations are not infallible or that Francis is not really the pope. And make no mistake, if you argue against this canonization, those are your only two alternatives. Either none of the church's canonizations are certain, or Francis is not Pope. Maybe you want to say, no, I'm not casting doubt on all canonizations, just those after a certain date. Okay, when? Was it 1965 at the close of the council? Or 1969 when Paul VI began tinkering with the methodology of canonization? Was it 1983 with the publication of Divinis Perfectionis Magister, the document of John Paul II, which created the current process? In other words, when do you cut it off and why? And if you argue that canonizations were not always infallible, then tell me when did they become infallible? Was it in 1170 when Alexander III declared canonizations reserved to the Holy See alone? If we insist on the procedural argument, it's important to note that Alexander III did not institute any new procedures in 1170. He merely translated the jurisdiction of canonizations from local bishops to the Holy See. So if we hang our hats on 1170 based on a procedural argument, no new procedures were instituted then. They came in gradually later, piecemeal, here a little, there a little. The rigorous process we associate with the preconciliar methodology did not become standardized until the 1750s. So, but maybe 1170 isn't our date. Maybe it's when the role of devil's advocate was first used by Leo X in the Renaissance. Or was it when the office of promotor fide, that's the devil's advocate, was formally established in 1587? Was it 1634 when Urban VIII reserved the entire process, including beatification, to the Roman pontiff? Was it 1588 when the Congregation of Rites was established? Or perhaps 1607 when the devil's advocate was made the supreme official of that congregation with the authority over scrutinizing the beati? Was it during the late 1700s when the excellent principles of Prospero Lambertini, the future Benedict XIV, were written down in De Servorum Dei Beatificatione? which became the norms for the canonization process? Who knows? The fact is, if we argue that canonizations only become infallible at a certain time, or lost their infallibility at a certain time, we're left with a total, arbitrary, subjective determination of when, how, and why. Subjective determinations that solve no problems, answer no questions, and simply leave the entire canonization process for the whole church's history open to skepticism. Sometimes people don't think through the ramifications of what they oh, what no. they're arguing. I, I I can say that because I know I don't either. So that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean that's that, that's where you go if you say these canonizations are not are, are not on par with other yeah. ones. Um, there's been sloppy canonizations in the past. There, there's been people canonized for the wrong reasons. There's been people canonized with no investigation uh, or with little investigation. Um, it, it happens, um, but. 
I think it's scandalous. Uh, I think it's scandalous when that happens because it, it casts doubt on the church's integrity of the process. And a lot of people that that's very, very important to them. And I, it's important to me too. I want to see a rigorous process. I remember a Butler's article had, a had an Anglican like watching over the process and he, uh, he was shocked at how how rigorous the Catholics were and how like scrutinizing they were like and yeah and going into like trying to find ulterior motives. So like I that's a really good failsafe. It is. Um, now to be fair though, I've done a thorough study of what the preconciliar process was, mm-hmm. and I actually had a blog post on my website where I had a side by side table yeah. that showed every step and how the uh, now a lot of the steps in the old one was a lot of bureaucratic stuff. Okay, like it wasn't stuff like a lot of it was like. Um, you got to send the notice to this congregation, then he has to stamp it, then it has to go to this guy, then this guy has to send it to this guy. And a lot of times nothing actually changed other than that a lot of people got more paperwork. And so that the new process shortened it. So like when people say the new process is so much more simplified, Mm -hmm. that is true. But that doesn't mean that everything that was happening in the old process was actually relevant to scrutinizing the, the candidate. Certainly, it was, certainly with the promoter fide, though the devil's advocate, that's the that's the major one. They stopped trying to positively look for uh, for faults on the part of the candidate, which I think should be the first thing you do. Or the miracle, like uh, Mother Teresa's uh, Mother Teresa's doctor uh, said that nobody ever came and asked him about the miracle. Yeah, yeah. Like, wouldn't that be the first thing you go ask? Yeah, yeah. To ask the doctor, and he said it was totally naturally explainable yeah the very doctor of the the miracle that she got beatified for yeah so that'd be the first place you'd look and i would want the doctor if if i was in charge you know i'd be asking the doctor is there any natural explanation is there any uh you know psychosomatic explanation is there any other explanation and only if he could say no honestly then i would proceed so is it just is it as simple as just not dwelling on this stuff i mean what what do we, what do we do? Because you know there are people who have difficulties with it, and they I don't know. I think I someone don't... commented on your post that like if JP two is canonized or if Paul the six is canonized, I'm leaving the church. Or I'm going instead of a cantist. Yeah. But you know I don't even actually I don't actually care about that. And the canonization isn't the issue. It's a lot of the stuff that comes with JP two. Um, the real issue is that because he's canonized, people try to find praiseworthy interpretations of the bad things that happened yes, under him. Yes. Yes. Like they can't just be, they can't just be like, well, he kissed the Quran and that wasn't one of his better moments. You know, they have to find like, well, I think that was a great thing to do. Yeah. You know, like, but it, it, it leaves, it leaves us the faithful with like trying to draw the line and know where the good things are and where the bad things are. Which we is can, why we should only canonize people that only have good things, you know, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. that have overwhelmingly like, okay, yeah. so I know a saint's not perfect, but a saint's flaws should be not substantially different than any normal human like like let's say john paul ii's flaws were like he lost his temper sometimes like uh sometimes he was uh you know disorganized you know like things like that that any that you'd say like nobody's perfect i can understand that but those aren't the so when people are like saints aren't perfect like yeah they're not but i don't expect my saints to be doing things that are fundamentally scandalous more than once like, more than re- once repeatedly, repeatedly yeah you know yeah so yeah, they're not per- they're not perfect, but you know that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about human flaws. Yeah. Nobody forced John Paul II to let a, a Hindu woman put a, a blessing on his forehead. Yeah. You know, and actually, that I start I just like in the first 
three paragraphs of Theology of the Body, I found the documentary hypothesis. And I'm just so frustrated with like that. And I, a lot of people won't care. Or the won't funny thing is he got it wrong too. Like okay. he, yeah, like he, he used the JEPD. Yeah. But he like assigned the wrong text to the wrong. Uh... <laughs> oh, there you go. It's, yeah. So, yeah. but I don't. He's trying to be, he's trying to be relevant to, instead of this is what the kids are into, it's this is what the scholars are into. Okay. And he's trying to. He's trying to be like, hey, look, the Catholic Church is still scholarly. Let me reference the documentary hypothesis. Right. The, never looked at it that way before. I can see that as a very human motivation. It's the same thing that Francis is doing when he's when he's popping off about, you know, about global, uh, about plastic in the ocean or about, you know, it's like, it's like, this is what the people are into, you know, and the, uh, the kids, <laughs> uh, this is what the kids of the, you know, not the literal kids, but think of the kids as the popular, the, 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 uh, the rabble, the mob. This is what the mob is into. They're into eco stuff. See, I'm well, re- I'm relevant guys. See, I'm still cool. Old yeah. Papa Frankie's still cool. I, and yeah, it fails so miserably, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's pathetic. It's pandering. It, like I've worked with, okay. I know we're not talking about literal kids. But maybe we can because World Youth Day uh, is, is marketed to young people. Uh, I've worked with with kids my whole adult life. What they absolutely do not want is uh, is adults or older people trying to show them how some adult thing is actually cool or relevant to them. Uh, what they want to do, you know, they don't want you to come down to their level. They want to transcend. Uh, a young person wants to be shown how there's more than what they're experiencing, yeah. not be shown how... Uh, this other stuff is actually the same old banal stuff that they're experiencing in their day-to-day life. They want tra- they want a transcendent experience. That's why the young people love the traditional Latin mass. It takes them out of their little world. Misery. Yeah. Something more. Yeah. Hey, man. Well, that pretty much summed up. I have the show notes, but that just summed them all up kind of neatly. I can't really say much more. I can't. Well, it, it, we were talking earlier about maintaining a balance, like holding the mean position. Um I see there's two extremes, either like John Paul II's not a saint and the canonization is wrong, or he every single thing he did is great and wonderful and praiseworthy. Yeah. Um we have to we have to maintain a balanced position on it. He's yeah. clearly been declared a saint. Unless you want to really get into some murky waters, you have to affirm that he's a saint. Yeah. Um and at the bare minimum, you can say uh, a saint ultimately just means that he's in heaven, even though that's not the ideal behind what a canonization is meant. So you still can maintain that this is an abuse of the canonization process um, in that, uh, like, let's say the canonization process has three purposes and it's only fulfilling one of them, yeah. the, at least the primary one. Um, so I think you you have to maintain he's a saint. You can still maintain that that this is an abuse of the process and that on a human level, it's it, it's not as solid as it could be. Okay, I, I don't know anything about GP2. I've only, what I've learned in Scandal Blogs. So you grew, you grew which is bad. You, you grew up with him. Yeah. What is the... I cried when he died. I, I know, yeah, I remember I, you said I, that. As I did. As I, I, well, I, I wept. Yeah, okay. I wept when he died. Great. You too. What the heck is this, like, I've been just talking about GP2 with people a lot lately, and people, like, love GP2. Like what? What's what? Help me understand. Like this is like help me understand. I'm I'm really surprised that you haven't yet noticed there is a statue of JP two in my house and a picture of JP two in my house. Oh no, you, you still haven't picked it up. No. Um, for me, JP two helped me to love the Eucharist. I didn't actually understand the real presence until I started reading things like Ecclesia de Eucharistia and really understand kind of the the breadth of the theology on the Eucharist. 
Um, that matched with his actual reverence towards what I understood. I, I'm coming from a Novus Ordo mindset, so I hadn't seen the Latin Mass except for pictures or whatever, right? But, you know, um, yeah, like I saw his, his reverence, the time he would spend in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, things like that. And I would go, and then I would read, like, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, and I would be like, oh, yeah, like, the Eucharist is amazing, you know, and I don't know. Like, John that... Paul II was, he was Pope from two years before I was born until I was 25. Right. Um, I mean, this this was the Catholic Church, that was the face of the Church. Um, I think more so than Benedict, way more than Francis, John Paul II was inspiring. He was uh, he was an inspiring man. He'd overcome a lot. He he uh, he lived an inspiring life, and he died an inspiring death. And he gave people hope. Now, I don't mean to sound like Barack Obama-ish uh, about it, like hope and change, you know. But um, he he did give people a lot of hope. And ironically, the people who love John Paul II the most are not as familiar with his writings you know like i think the people your average catholic that adores john paul ii i don't think they've waded through everything he's ever written he was a talented writer um i still like reading his i mean to this day um fides et ratio is a an excellent document that that stand stands very well the test of time and several of his other documents a lot of what he wrote some sometimes it goes off into weirdness but JP2 was actually very orthodox in what he wrote. I can find more questionable statements in writings of Benedict XVI than I can find in JP2. Mm -hmm. uh, JP2 basically reiterated an orthodox doctrine in novel terms. Benedict XVI actually said novel things, which right. is different. Mm -hmm. um, and Francis is a combination of the worst traits of both. <laughs> yeah, but I was I was inspired by John Paul II as a, a leader, like I as a leader of the church. Now, granted, I wasn't a traditionalist when he was like I didn't come to really interest in Latin Mass till Benedict was pope. It was Benedict that got me interested in the mm. traditional Latin Mass. Mm. But as far as a rank and file Catholic, um, you know, I was proud of John Paul II. I was like, we we have a very good, inspiring competent person up there later find out his organization administration is a nightmare you know in terms of the, the curia yeah lots of other problems come to look at him from more of a historian's viewpoint but as a catholic who used to sit around the living room with the, the candle burning in front of john paul ii's picture you know um you know during rosary praying for yeah. the pope you know yeah. i had a you know i had a I have to say, I miss having a filial affection for the Pope. Yeah. I don't have that affection towards Francis, obviously. Mm -hmm. I did sort of have it towards uh, Benedict, but he was there for so short a time. And even though Benedict was great, I didn't grow up with him. Right. You know, um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't totally explain it. It, it, it. Like, I remember when I was coming into the church, I had to accept the papacy, you know, coming from a, a, a Protestant background. Um, or going through Protestantism. And I remember really understanding what it meant to be devoted to the successor of Peter through John Paul II, through like, it was through JP two that I learned what it meant to love the Pope, you know, and it took me many years to be able to criticize him, uh, because of what I knew was wrong with his pontificate. So I don't know, it, it's hard to answer for some people. It's going to be just, uh, it's going to be emotional too, you know? Uh, but yeah, I, I wept when he died. 
And even now thinking about him, I'm a little teary-eyed um, thinking about it. And and this is from a guy who's argued against his canonization, um, right. you know, as a human being, not as a good pope, just as a man, he inspired me big time. Mm-hmm. I... Okay, well, I just... And I, I met him in person once, too. Oh, cool. I mean, I didn't shake his hand or anything. I went to one of his Wednesday audiences, and I yeah. got very close to him. Did he give you a big blessing in your direction? Uh, the Medjugorje. In my Medjugorje. direction. In the Medjugorje. Like, um, yeah, I held up a sign that said it. Grass Lake, and when he blessed yeah. it, I was like, JP2 gave my city a blessing. Yes, there you <laughs> know, uh, he, by the time I saw him, it was 2003. They they wheeled him out, and he yeah. was like, his head was down, and like they put a paper in his hand, and he read a pre-prepared statement. Yeah, and, okay. uh, but I have a crucifix hanging in my room that he blessed personally that my mom got from him when she went to Rome years earlier. That's so, cool. so I don't know. Um, you know, perhaps it's a failing that I have, have a hard time disentangling my emotions about him. Uh, I mean, I, maybe not. I mean, I still can understand there's bad things about him uh, that, you I, know. I, uh, yeah, I guess just the point of this podcast, I've been continually frustrated with uh, just pe- people not being able to understand my criticisms of them or even just like anyone's criticism i 100 percent understand those criticisms. and okay yeah so i don't know i'm just so the whole point of this podcast was hopefully for me to see the one side and for anyone listening to hopefully see the other side of like why i would have issues with jp too so well i think it's a i think it's a problem where a lot of catholics just don't understand how they're supposed to relate to the pope yeah. because after after the 60s the popes laid down a lot of their uh, uh, the emblems of their authority uh, not just the tiara, but their willingness to govern in uh, what I would call a more authoritarian manner. They opted for the medicine of mercy. and But Catholics still know they're supposed to have a reverence and obedience for the Pope, but the Pope isn't standing up to exercise those prerogatives. So they're wondering, how does this obedience look? How does our filial affection for the successor of Peter look in practice? And what it turns into is this kind of pop adulation uh, this so the way we adulate celebrities, um, where we have to be enamored with everything they're doing. And I think what's going to happen with the Franciscan pontificate, this might be a blessing in disguise, and I really emphasize in disguise, <laughs> that in the future, we'll look back at Francis and we'll say, yeah, this is a real good, you know, for a while there, we were very, uh, we were treating the Pope like a celebrity. We were, we were adulating everything he did, but now we see because of everything that happened with Francis, that's not an ideal way to look at the Pope. We have to be more balanced in how we approach this. And maybe, unless we get another uh, person like Francis after this, maybe the church will return to some sanity in how we, we look at the Pope. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. That, that wraps it up then? Yeah. Cool. Well, then, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope this helps, and uh, have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> well, what'd you think? Are you surprised? Shocked? Dismayed? Elated that someone else gets it? We'd love to know your thoughts. Message us on Facebook or DM on Instagram at Theology of the Buddy or email us at theologyofthebuddy at gmail.com. Also, if you subscribe to us on social media, we would love to have you join Chris and I for our lovely Facebook Lives. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Next week, the boys actually get into discussing discursive meditation and mental prayer. If you're looking for ways to go deeper in your interior life, next week's podcast shares some great tips. New episodes are released every Wednesday, so y'all come back now, you hear? Stay tratty!